Hello! Welcome to episode 25. Wow, it's been a long time, I know. Do tell, did you notice I was gone? <laughs> In case you didn't, I have lots to tell you. I took a whole month off to refocus, reconnect, and also to strategize my next moves, not only with my personal life, but also with Nature Spired as a whole. And let me tell you, it was a very much needed break. I haven't ever taken time off from work in my life. Even when I used to work um, for a corporate or normal job, I used to write blogs and organize photo shoots on my time off. So it was definitely a needed breath of fresh air. 10 out of 10 would recommend. <laughs> okay, I won't be taking too much time talking about my break. I promise we'll get into this episode really soon, but I did want to keep you in the loop of what's been going on now that I'm back. So I've decided to make some pretty significant changes in the nature-inspired biz that I am super excited to share. So the first big thing I wanted to announce is, drumroll please, I will no longer be offering consulting services under Naturespired. I know, it's a bit sad, but don't fret. <laughs> I will still take on some clients on an exclusive freelance basis if, for example, you see my work and you like what I stand for and what I'm doing and you still want um, like coaching and stuff like that. I can do that, but this will no longer be the focal point of the business. I found I really needed to go back to why I built Nature Spired in the first place. And you know, I started Nature Spired because I wanted to spark real systematic change in fashion, like really change people's perception of fashion in society. The whole purpose of Nature Spired's inception was to encourage individuals of all walks of life to live a life inspired by nature and to shift fashion from the inside out. But things changed very quickly within a month of launch when I started offering consulting services, which was amazing. And I got to meet so many incredible entrepreneurs and business owners and see some really awesome brands grow and thrive. But when I first sketched out and strategized the birth of Nature Spired in October 2020, it was conceived as an educational platform first and foremost. And although I feel like I've kept part of that promise or deal, a lot of my goals to educate and organize action had to be put to the side to focus on consulting for the past year. And although I'm saddened to say goodbye to offering services, I am so excited to go back to the basics of why I started this in the first place and focus on activism, community engagement, and education. So exciting. So what will this look like? Well, I'm not going to say too much, but let's just say that there are new developments coming your way that will allow you to learn more consistently through Naturespired. You'll also be able to be a part of a exclusive community in a real way, including being involved in podcast episodes, join our community memberships, and attend digital and in-person events. This is really big for me because when I started Naturespired, like I said, I want to change how everyone from all walks of life 
interacts and communicates and thinks about fashion. So creating events and going out in person, either to the streets or organizing action as a community will really help bring the importance of sustainable fashion to everyone and anyone who these events touch. So that is very exciting for me. Okay, I promised I wouldn't make this whole episode about an update, so let's dive into today's topic. What is neuromarketing and how does it affect purchasing decisions? Specifically, fashion purchasing decisions. I've explained the definition briefly of neuromarketing and a few fun facts about it in episode 12, but I wanted to break it down further and make an episode specifically dedicated to it because I think we all deserve to know how brands, fashion or not, are using our brains and psychological behavior to push products and sales without us consciously knowing it. Wouldn't you agree? I think we all deserve at least that. So what is neuromarketing? So the field of neuromarketing, sometimes known as consumer neuroscience, studies the brain to predict and potentially even manipulate consumer behavior and decision making. Neuromarketing loosely refers to the measurement of psychological and neural signals to gain insight into consumers' motivations, preferences, and decisions. Its most common method are brain scanning, which measures neural activity, and physiological tracking, which measures eye movement and other proxies for activity. I've got this definition from the Harvard Business Review, so I will link everything I talk about or reference in this episode in the show notes. Now that we know what it is, what does it look like in practice and how is it done? I'm going to expand on a few things that I mentioned briefly in the definition. So I'm going to talk about how they measure neural activity, what type of tracking is used, and how does this all connect to fashion. So the first one um, that is used a lot in neuromarketing is eye tracking or mouse tracking technology. So the eye tracking technology measures visual focal points and excitement correlated with pupil dilation, revealing a customer's emotional response to marketing and advertising campaigns. Eye tracker technology systems can include software like heat maps and gaze plots, and the data it produces helps improve marketing campaigns and brand assets such as web design, creative advertising, and product packaging. So for example, some websites include like eye tracking technologies that tracks your eye throughout the site to see what triggers a a positive or negative emotional response. That's really in, in plain terms what that means. So the second thing is color usage. We see this a lot in marketing where, you know, you're branding colors and I've even talked about it in the past, how important it is to have an effective color scheme and a cohesive brand image and how that helps connect you with your customer. But the reason behind that is because customers make a subconscious judgment or assessment about products within 90 seconds of initial viewing. And between 62 and 90% of that judgment or assessment is based on color alone. That's according to a research by Colorcom. I'll leave that also in the show notes. So this can also start to make a lot of sense of why a lot of greenwashers or greenwashing campaigns uses the literal color green to indirectly and subconsciously convince consumers that a product or service is indeed better for the environment when it is not because subconsciously we connect the color green with nature. Another neuromarketing tactic is emotional response analysis. 
And this can be done using facial coding, which uses webcam technology to analyze customers' facial expressions, measuring their emotional responses to content and branding. Using data that detects key emotions such as anger, contempt, disguise, fear, joy, sadness, and surprise, marketers can tweak campaigns to achieve their desired results. So for example, if you go onto a website and a pop-up comes up and then it pops up again in the next page that you're in and then it pops up again, then you're probably going to get a bit frustrated um, and this can reflect in your facial expressions. Um, So marketers can then use that to tweak their website or their marketing campaign to um, produce a feeling that's more of surprise in a good way, joy, for example, if that makes sense. And the fourth one I'm going to mention, even though there's many, um, is psychological triggers. So psychological triggers that specifically create an emotional response are methods that influence consumer decision making. One of the most powerful methods is social proof. The idea that people will confirm to be liked, associated with, or accepted by an influencer or society. According to a Frontiers in Psychology study, neuromarketing has demonstrated the relevance of so-called social influence in social networks. Users tend to imitate the behaviors of others. For example, fear of missing out is one of the psychological triggers that are closely related to social proof. So another example of this strategy or this tactic is when a brand puts out like a sale. And they're like, by now, there's only three left. You don't want to miss out on this incredible deal. Everyone else has it. You're the only one left that does not have this product Um, and things like that. That's kind of subconsciously triggering a psychological response like fear of missing out. So these are a few among many tactics that encompass neuromarketing. If you want to learn about more tactics, including anchoring, decision paralysis, etc., then check out the article I linked um, in the show notes that should be called 15 Neuromarketing Examples or something like that. All right, so I'm sure by now you're probably thinking, what the actual... (laughs) I want to throw my laptop and all connection to the digital world out the window immediately. You might also be asking yourself, how is this okay? Are brands allowed to track these things without us knowing it? Well, have you ever read a privacy policy? Yes, it's all in there most of the time. I've personally read privacy policies because I'm a very curious person and I want to know what, you know, people are doing with my data and they do say it right there that they um, use personal information for tracking and whatnot. But you might also be wondering, well, how do they track? Like, how are they tracking my eyes? How are they tracking my mouse? How, how do they have access to all this information? Well, have you also ever seen those little cookies appear when you enter a site? That's how. So cookies are just another word for trackers. So if you go to a site and see a pop-up that says accept cookies or choose preferences, if you click accept all cookies, you're giving full access to the site to track whatever it is that they want or what's listed on their tracking cookie list. Hence why sometimes you feel like your phone is listening to you or you start seeing ads from something after searching on Google. If you don't want this to happen anymore, 
make sure you click choose preferences and deselect all cookies that are non-essential. They won't allow you to deselect essential cookies, but essential cookies are typically performance cookies, which track the performance and speed of a site to ensure it's functional and on the web and so forth. So these are typically okay to be left on. So let's talk a little bit more about how it's connected to fashion for a moment. Now that we know what neuromarketing is, now that we know the tactics that are being used, how does this all connect to fashion? Because this is still a fashion podcast. <laughs> well, as you can imagine by now, after just learning all that, neuromarketing tactics can make it very easy to affect and persuade your subconscious into a purchase. And brands use these strategies, not all brands, but a lot or most brands use these strategies to get into our heads and to get us interested and excited for products before we even gain consciousness that we need them or want them. But this doesn't mean that brands and and everyone on the internet who owns a business have full control of your subconscious. No, (laughs) that's a bit dramatic and I don't want you to be getting too scared about what neuromarketing is. Um, But it's important to know because if brands can track our mind and make campaigns to trigger responses for products that we may or may not be subconsciously looking for, then doesn't it make sense to use this information for the reverse? As you've probably heard me mention a billion times, I always say, and one of my my phrases for Nature Inspired is, let's shift fashion from the inside out. What this means is basically, if we can understand the way that brands use information to gain our purchasing decisions, then we can then use them to change the way our society connects with fashion. Instead of using these strategies for greed and mass consumption, we should be encouraging a reinvention of how we view fashion in general. And although we find these tactics and strategies kind of creepy, um, it is the way that the world works now. And it's the way that digital media and just, you know, the digital universe is going. So instead of fighting it, we should learn how to use it to trigger positive emotional responses towards positive change, right? See, that's the thing. Triggering positive emotional responses is very important for us to actually get to our bottom line, which with sustainability, it's for people to recognize the importance of change, for people to recognize the importance of sustainability and act accordingly. And sometimes negative reaction works, but that can eventually become exhausting. Feeling pain is exhausting. Feeling sadness is truly exhausting. And after a while of wanting to change things with anger, um, it, it kind of falls through the cracks. And also people who are scrolling on Instagram or watching reels or TikToks, they, we all don't want constant negative media. We, we don't always want to feel negative things. We want to know about them and it's important for us to be aware and educated, but we don't want to consistently feel negative emotions. But if a campaign about human rights was focusing on some of the negative and then saying something like fashion is contributing to um, slave-like conditions, but we've created a way to fix that, this is how you can take action that brings the importance of the issue, but also triggers a positive response as well. So 
basically what I really wanted to do with this episode was bring to light some of the strategies and marketing tactics that brands use to persuade and change your purchasing decision to make you buy more. And hopefully what that'll do is invite you to be more cautious on who you trust and also to demand that brands use the power of near marketing or marketing in general um, for good, that they use the power of shifting consumer decisions for something positive instead of just greed and mass consumption. There's so much power that brands have But the problem is brands don't really want to move unless they're pushed to move. They don't really want to change unless they feel like they have to. And that's where consumers come in. That's where change makers come in. That's where you come in. And by knowing this, I obviously don't want you to be scared of all technology. This is just the way things work now. Um, But by knowing this, maybe you gather a few tips to protect your privacy, but also you've ha- you've gathered some information to demand that brands use their platforms and their power to manipulate consumer behavior for something better, that they use it for reducing consumption, that they use it to redesign the way we connect, view, and relate to fashion. I'm going to leave it right there. I hope you have an amazing week. Um, I can't wait to be back here and chatting with you again. This one is probably going on a little bit of the longer side, but it's great to be back and to be on the mic. And I can't wait until the membership site is up and running so that you can actually join me on these episodes and give me your opinion and tell me what you think and what you thought was more insightful in real time. I'm going to leave it right there. Make sure to join me next time where I'll be interviewing a fashion brand that makes all of their clothing out of dead stock fabrics and has run a pretty successful local business doing just that. Until then, I'll see you on Instagram.